0: heavenly father we do thank you that your gospel word goes from generation to generation help us to be those who handle rightly your word please father make us people who are approved workmen and we ask these things in jesus name amen as workers, uh, whether uni or uh, out there in the workforce, uh, we all desire that, that tick of approval, don't we? From our lecturers, our, our tutors, from our bosses, our colleagues, uh, from our peers, our relatives. You know, it could come in the form of marks, of degrees, of even medals. Or the pay rise, the symbols of success, you know, that corner office overlooking the harbour. The smiles, the acknowledgement from our friends and relatives. Uh, if we are honest with ourselves... Uh, we actually want that tick of approval more than we like to admit. I remember when I was working as the the glorified clerk in the hospital, one day at the end of the day, my uh, senior, uh, the boss, came up to me, patted me on the back and said, Joshua, you are a really good resident. Now, I was just a little intern at the bottom of the rung. But he called me a resident, the, the next tier up, and he said I was a good resident. Oh, I, I, I felt so good. I worked so much harder for him for the next two weeks. I didn't get paid anymore, but yeah, there I go. If you're in gospel ministry, should we look for that tick of approval? <laughs> Ross Giddens, uh, columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, had this to say. He says there's three kinds of work. The first one is a job. You do a job for nothing other than the paycheck at the end of the week. The second kind is the career. A career involves deeper personal investment in work. You mark your achievements through money, but also through advancement. Each promotion brings you a higher prestige, more power, as well as a raise. But then there's a third kind of work, the calling. The calling or vocation, on the other hand, is a passionate commitment to the work for its own sake. The work is fulfilling in its own right, without regard for money or advancement. Individuals with a calling see their work as contributing to the greater good, to something larger than they are. And so our artists and musicians, even though they don't make it, you know, they're really passionate in their garage with their garage band. <laughs> What should we desire in our full time ministry if that is our work? Should we think of it as a job? Do it just for the money? Well, very unlikely because you don't get paid much. Especially if you work in a Chinese church, uh, they believe you keep them poor and humble. Uh, Unless, of course, you are working in one of these great uh, prosperity gospel churches where, you know, if you drive around a Ferrari, then that's a good example for the rest of the congregation. But other than that, nah. What about a career? Now that's possible in ministry, isn't it? Kudos, you know, you go to be a CBS trainee, and then you go to Bible college as a student, and then you're a senior student at Moore College, and then you become an LTP, a long-term pastor at CBS, A a minister, you know, assistant minister, rector, head pastor. Theological college lecturer, professor, a bishop, and to top them all off, the Contuba Convention speaker. (laughs) I don't know if speaking at mountain camp really counts, but next year I'll be up there in the big auditorium. A career, that's possible, isn't it? What about a calling, you know, to do our very best for the greater good, the kingdom, Hmm, perhaps? What should we desire? in full-time ministry. Uh, one of those things, or three of those things, or maybe none of those things. What should motivate us? Should we look for that tick of approval? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it does speak of Timothy needing to present himself as an approved worker, to do his best in that task. The task is an urgent one. Now, that phrase, to do your best, could be translated to, to hasten. Uh, to use speed. It's urgent. In chapter 1, we saw last night that the, the, the battle scene, the, uh, the situation necessitated this urgent, difficult task. Paul was in prison. And most of the people had abandoned him already. He wanted Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel. He wanted Timothy, chapter 1, verse 4, to guard the good deposit. The gospel was entrusted from God to Paul to Timothy without a Mexican wave, and Timothy guarded and so this first verse of chapter 2 strikes that tone immediately, doesn't it? You then. Because what I've said in chapter 1, you then, Timothy, my child. There comes the whole responsibility on Timothy's shoulders. Paul was the mentor who trained him, who loved him, and now he's to continue the task. Suffering was in the air, desertion was all around, and now the protégé is reminded of the power of the Spirit. The spirit is not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Reminded of God's power, who saved us. Glander from the beginning, sent Jesus, Jesus rose. And so in verse 1, that one line sums it all up, doesn't it? Be strengthened. There is the power word. Be strengthened by the grace. There is the gospel word. By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. But how? How is Timothy going to guard this deposit? Well, that's what chapter 2 is all about, and there's two main points. First, he's got to entrust the gospel that he's been entrusted with, and secondly, he has to know how to handle the opposition that would inevitably come. Point 2 then, entrust the gospel. It's not to trust it in terms of hiding it, but in terms of actually spreading it. And so 2 Timothy 2.2 2 is the famous uh, verse of passing the baton of the gospel. It's like in a 400-meter meter, uh, relay. Four generations, the baton goes from one to the other to the other. Uh, there's usually four generations spoken of here. Paul, Timothy, the faithful men, thirdly, and then lastly, the teacher, those who are uh, the faithful men teach. Four generations. It could be five, actually, because uh, the verse could read, uh, and what you have heard from me through many witnesses. That could be a possibility. And so you have Paul through many witnesses, who then tells Timothy, who then tells the others. That's not everything that Timothy heard was straight, direct from Paul. You now you hear lots of other things. Timothy heard other things that Paul had said, but he has to make sure that they were the eye witnesses, the ear witnesses, who testified to what Paul said. Either way, it's the apostolic message. It's Paul's message that he's going to pass on. Pass on, point B, in the hi-fi transmission. You know what hi-fi stands for? High fidelity, isn't it? What does fidelity mean? Fidelity means faithfulness, doesn't it? I had a friend who wanted to write her own vows in the marriage ceremony, and she decided to say, Dear Jeff, I'll pledge you my fidelity, which is really good. It's a faithfulness in marriage. Only in the actual wedding, it came out, Dear Jeff, I pledge you my fertility. and uh, Which is a slightly different thing. But fidelity is the key thing, isn't it? <laughs> Faithfulness to my promised word. God had promised his word, and Timothy is to be faithful to that word in passing it on. And so chapter 1, verse 13, the pattern of sound words, One thirteen. last night we saw, that Tim had heard from Paul. That's what he's going to pass on. Chapter 2, verse 2, what Timothy had heard from many or through many witnesses. That's why there has to be faithful teachers that Timothy passes it to. Faithful, fidelity, those who actually pass on that message to others. Not diluting it, not adding to it, not inventing more, just passing it on. As it is. As God had given it to the first century apostles. Once for all time delivered to the saints. That is the way to guard the gospel. Because it's gospel, because it's good news, then you've got to tell that news. There's the challenge for us. Is Are we going to be one of those faithful teachers? That's why chapter 2 verse 2, to be able to teach is not, I don't think, a competence. There is competence in our thinking about full-time ministry, as you'll see later on today. But here, the competence to be able is much more linked with conviction. Conviction about this message, the faithfulness to pass it on. It's much more even to do with faithfulness in terms of our character, as you'll see in a few moments' time. The key to being an approved worker is to be faithful. But to be faithful in the face of opposition is going to mean difficulty. It's going to be hard. And so verse 3, suffering comes in. There's three imageries of work given quick successions in verse 4 to 6. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer. All have their particular nuances applied to the gospel worker. It's all got to work, got to do work. And it's all somehow difficult in its own way. It's not easy, it's not quick. It needs perseverance. Let's begin with suffering. That's where Paul begins. uh, Timothy, suffer as a soldier, a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers are to fight on the battlefield. It's not a stroll in the park. Uh, The key for the gospel worker is to see that he's a soldier of Jesus. That makes the battle worthwhile. Uh, Recently, just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, uh, the British commemorated their 75th year of the Battle of Britain, where the uh, Royal Air Force defended against the onslaught from the German Luftwaffe. If they had lost, uh, the Nazi fleet would have made it to the British shore. There was a turning point uh, called the Hardest Day where both sides had heavy casualties. They lost more planes than they had lost in the rest of uh, that battle. There was shots, isn't there? I'm sure you saw it on the news. Shots of those old men. Old men who had been the pilots. Oh yes, I remember that. I flew in that Spitfire and I shot down those German planes. You think, wouldn't it have been great to be one of those people who were there who defended the United Kingdom? The British held their ground and guarded the shores from the Nazi invasion. Winston Churchill famously said afterwards about the fighter pilots, Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. It was worth it to fight for Churchill, to fight for the United Kingdom. How much more to fight for Messiah... The Christ, the Jesus, to fight for God's kingdom, the soldier. The soldier, chapter 2, verse 3, is not to be entangled in civilian affairs. Imagine you're one of those fighter pilots, you know, the siren goes off to scramble the planes, and you stay back. Oh, let's let me finish my chess game first. Let me finish my painting of this leaf first. You're on Facebook and you think, oh, you know, oh, I'll go a bit later. By then, your plane would have been blown up on the ground. Not to be engaged and tangled in civilian pursuits. does that mean that uh, people in full-time ministry cannot have hobbies? No, like tending to the vegetable garden like Carl does. (laughs) I don't tend to vegetable gardens. I make Lego. Although my wife says, why can't you be like Carl? At least we can eat the stuff. (laughs) And I would say, well, you don't have to water Lego, do you? <laughs> it's not wrong to have hobbies, but they must not distract you from actually your main business of pleasing Jesus, of the gospel work. You know, it's easy to be distracted, isn't it? You just have to go on Facebook and see what your friends, you know, what your high school mates, what they're up to, and later on in life, what your peers are up to, You know, the nice holiday they've had, And they've taken all these selfies, the new house, the new veranda, the new barbecue, whatever they've got. And you start, hey, you know, I wish I could have that. And you start dreaming away. When my twin girls were uh, little, when they are in uh, in primary two or three, uh, they had a friend who um, was boasting about the new house and especially the mini TVs uh, she had. And this friend said, "Look, you know, we got a big TV in our lounge room. You know what? And also in our family room, we also got a big TV. And then upstairs in my parents' room, they got one too. We got three TVs." And when my daughter said, "Hmm, well, my daddy preaches three times on Sunday," the <laughs> well, friends didn't quite know what to do with that, right? <laughs> aim, the focus of what we're doing is to please Messiah Jesus. Don't get distracted by the things of this world. Follow your commanding officer. Now there is hard work but here even in the soldier one there is a reward. What's the reward? Well if your aim is to please Jesus then the reward is that he is pleased, isn't that? That you may please your commanding officer. The athlete verse five starts off with the reward right up front, the crown, the, the reef, the, the, uh, the, the gold medal that the athlete will get. But you've got to compete according to the rules verse five. There's the outright cheating that Lance Armstrong would do, you know, getting drugged up, you know pumped into him all the way, from one stage to the other stage, but having all the titles now stripped from him. But also there's the non-deliberate, the uh, non-blatant kind of uh, not competing to the rules. Uh, Like the walker. There's a walker called Jane Seville in 2000 Sydney Olympics in the 20-kilometre walk. The Australian, there was our chance to win gold. And here's what the commentator said, it's Seville of Australia. You hear the roar all around Australia when she walks into the stadium. Wang is chasing her, probably Chinese. She's not all that behind her, but Seville is leading still and they're about to out of my vision and we'll go to the commentator in the stadium and, oh no, she's, she's got the red disc. Here's the picture. She's got the red disc, that, that disc that says she's disqualified for an illegal stride. Now, I don't understand walking. It's a very complicated thing. <laughs> but she'd got one or two warnings beforehand And there was her last warning. She was distraught. I was distraught to be disqualified when you got so close. It can happen in ministry. In the late 1990s, uh, there was a guy called Roy Clements. Uh, Don Carson had said that he, Roy Clements, was one of the best preachers in the whole world. Uh, We from Sydney invited him up to Katoomba. He spoke at men's convention. He did a lot of travelling, international travelling, with his uh, PA, a bloke. And then in time, he came out and said that he had this attraction, this uh, celibate relationship with this other man. So much so, I don't know what celibate relationship exactly means, but so much so that he divorced his wife and left his four kids or this other man. He disqualified himself. We had to pull his tapes out of the Katoomba Convention tape library, no longer sell his books. I met a friend who um, was actually on the apprenticeship, the MTS, uh, at his church when all that had happened. It's an awful business. And recently he said he saw Roy Clements you know, in a pub in England somewhere by himself, looking very sad. To be able to teach is not about ability of competence, but about ability of character. The athlete. Verse 6, there's the farmer. Again, obviously hard work, not exciting, same old thing, sowing season, harvest time, early morning, late at night, before the day of irrigation, before the day of tractors, it's man against the elements. The emphasis here is, however, on the reward, the positive. Not so much losing a gold medal, but gaining the crop, verse 6. The hard-working farmer ought, should be the first to share in that crop. There is a future, there is a reward, there is a motivation there. In verse 7, Paul says, look, Jesus will help you understand. As we so try to put it all together, the image, is, the image is that of enduring difficulty. Don't get distracted. Please, Jesus, keep to the rules. Have your eye on the goal. Endure. It's hard, ministry. About five years into uh, my doing full-time ministry, there was a time working with uh, focus where I thought we would quit. Um, It didn't come from opposition, uh, from outside, from the non-Christians. It came from people within uh, focus. In fact, the leaders at that time within focus. You just don't expect that, that kind of difficulty. It was helpful to uh, hear from a farmer. Um, we heard of from uh, this guy who uh, was in a uh, Bible college, and he said, "Oh, I, I'm, he was a lecturer, he said, I, I, "I used to be a farmer." And let me tell you something about farming. Uh, some animals are stubborn. You try to get this donkey out of the shed, and it just won't move. You pull, and it goes, no way. You pull some more, it goes, no way. Some people, you know, some people in your congregation are going to be like that. And you know what? The sheep, let me tell you something. Sheep are not cute and cuddly. Sheep bite. I got all these sores to show you on my leg. Now, that actually helped us to expect that there will be difficulty Sometimes even from amongst the congregation. Paul promises difficulty. Verse 8 to 13, he continues to explain this in a bit more uh, clear, explicit manner. Verse 8 to 13, he reminds them, reminds Timothy, that the commander he follows as the soldier is actually... Commander Jesus, the Messiah Jesus. Verse 8, remember Jesus, Messiah, risen from the dead. He's the offspring of David. In other words, he is the the legitimate line. 2 Samuel chapter 7 promised David a, a, a son who will rule forever. This one, Jesus, is he. Remember him. Why does he have to remember Jesus as the king, as the ruler, as the one who reigns? Well, because verse 9, Paul is in prison. Now, what do you do? What do you think about when the apostle of Jesus is actually locked up? Well, you might think maybe Paul has actually failed Jesus. What's worse, maybe Jesus has failed Paul. Maybe Jesus' message is actually a failure. But Paul says, no, no, I may be chained up. But verse 9, the word of God is not chained. The word of God is not bound. And so verse 9 and 10 explains how God is still working. God is still calling his elect home. That's part of God's power, isn't it? Changing people's hearts to win them to eternal glory in the end. Jesus is the one who will bring them to that glory. Jesus is reigning as the king you're going to make a difference in people's eternity. I may be chained, I may look like a loser, but the gospel is not a loser. Jesus is the victor. Do you ever realise that uh, there's more and more uh, Marvel and DC Comics movies coming out, isn't it? You know, Iron Man 1, 2 and 3, there's even an Iron Lady, there's uh, Spider-Man, there is Batman, all those superheroes kind of movies. Now, why is that? Partly it's because computer graphics is really good nowadays and because they're going to make lots and lots of money at the box office. But partly also it's because I think people say it's the the society we live in. Uh, We are fearful of terrorism. We are fearful of the attack. And so it's good always to at least believe in the fantasy that good will triumph over evil. I mean, a lot of those comics were written you know, in the post-World War II, you know, with the Cold War and you now evil Russia coming into the West. We Christians are reminded that we will win. Not so much that good will triumph over evil, but God's goodness, God's grace, that will triumph over evil. And so, remember Jesus Christ. Be strengthened with the grace that is in him. Verse 11 to 13 gives us a little poem here and it really just underlines much the same point. The first two lines is about the assurance that comes. If we've died with him, uh, perhaps in terms of um, our turning to Jesus, following him, committed to him, uh, maybe it could be actually suffering martyrdom. If we died with him, we will also live with him. There is that future reward. If we endure... We will also reign with him. There's a great motivation of the future. Positive encouragement. He's already painted that picture of the, uh, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer. All about the reward and now this underlines it. The last two lines of this poem, verse 12 and 13, is about the warning. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless... He remains faithful. Now, some people think that last bit means, uh, you know, you can give up on Jesus, but never mind, Uh, he'll still hold on to you at the end. He'll be faithful to you. But I don't think that's what it's saying. It's saying that if we deny him, he will deny us. It's actually a warning here. He's going to be faithful to his own character. And if you reject him as Lord and Saviour, well, he will reject you. There's a real warning here. It's important to notice here that even those like Timothy in in gospel ministry need not only the encouragement but the warning, isn't it? I've known people who've uh, done the apprenticeship, done more theological college, and yet have fallen away. If Timothy needs this encouragement, needs this challenge, how much more do we? Four plus generations, high fire transmission, soldier, athlete, farmer. That's what it involves, to entrust the gospel. And what will strengthen our resolve? To know that Jesus reigns. But precisely because this entrusting the gospel is done on the battlefield, opposition all around, then how do we do it in the light of the opposition? Well, verse 14 to the end is all about that. And the first point is the danger you've got to recognise. You've got to size up, identify the opposition. It's not planes and bombs. It's words, ideas, lies. Chapter 2, verse 16. Lies such as irreverent babble, not irrelevant, but irreverent. In other words, uh, that which does not revere, does not honor God. Babble, just words, 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 you know, bit here, bit there. Verse 18, it's the, that which swerves from the truth. Uh, this is serious stuff. It's significant error we're talking about here. Verse 17, why does error matter? Because their talk, verse 17, will spread like gangrene. It's a medical imagery, isn't it? I was going to show you some slides, but I didn't want to um, upset you too much after breakfast. But the uh, bacterial infection, the pus, the redness that turns to black flesh, Then the disappearing flesh. And before the days of antibiotics, you know, you've got to chop off that limb or it'll actually kill you. Verse 14, it's quarrels are like that. It just spreads more and more. It ruins the hearers. Verse 16 leads to more ungodliness. More quarrel, more fighting. See, people's error in their teaching, it's translated into error in their living. And the worst of all consequence in verse 18, it upsets the faith of some. It can kill. Of course, we ought to stop trusting Jesus, living for him. The stakes are high. Hymenas and Philetus, they're false teachers who are named in verse 17. Again, no uh, little Christian boys are named those names. Probably false teachers, um, probably from within the congregation at one time, maybe even some of their leaders, who'd swerved from the truth. What was their specific false teaching? How were they quarrelling? What were they quibbling about? Verse 18, they were saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and so they upset the faith of some now resurrection we've seen it's already a big issue in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10 remember the appearance of our saviour Christ Jesus that that resurrection appearance is an important thing in the gospel chapter 2 verse 8 Timothy is to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead these false teachers were not denying the resurrection that Jesus rose but they were saying that the resurrection has already taken place so what's the problem? But a bit of detective work, it's not explicitly spelt out here. In Paul's letters, the resurrection is not just that Jesus you know, came back to life three days later. The resurrection is a big idea. Jesus, remember in John chapter 11, he says to uh, Mary, or Martha, one of the two, um, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus, when he rises from the dead, brings in the whole age of the resurrection. Here's the first uh, slide coming up there. See if uh, you can actually put these following verses into somewhere on that slide. This is the uh, typical overlap diagram, which I hope you are well aware of. Uh, It goes from uh, uh, BC and then this age... The first coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, at the second coming is the J-Day, the Judgment Day. With the resurrection of Jesus comes this resurrection age, the anodomini age, the year of the Lord age. Where would these verses fit in? Just try to put them in in your own mind. Chapter 1, verse 1, The promise of life in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 9, In his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Before the ages began. 1 verse 10. The appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. 2 verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. 2 verse 11. If we die with him, we will also live with him. 2 verse 12. If we endure we will reign with him. 2 verse 12. If we deny him, he will deny us. And chapter 4 verse 1. Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. Well, here's a bit of a clue um, where things are at. Before the ages began, and there's a future reign after the resurrection After actually more than the resurrection, after the second coming of Jesus. We are already in this overlap time in the already age. But there is a not yet age after the second coming. What I think these false teachers are saying is, the resurrection has already come. There's nothing after what has happened already. And so they might picture it like this. Jesus' resurrection has arrived. We have entered the resurrection age, maybe spiritually, and that's it. There's no first, second coming. No point talking about second coming. There's only this, this Jesus' resurrection. That's it. No future. No, not yet. And so, people may well think, well, this is all we've got. You're Christians now, living here. Oh, You're resurrected spiritually And that's what really matters, your spiritual relationship with God. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul uh, says, look, some people are actually saying don't get married, don't have sex within marriage, uh, don't eat this food, don't eat that food, all that kind of teaching... Well, could fit in, isn't it, to them thinking, oh, it's just a spirit dimension I now live in. What I do with my body, oh, yucky body, you know, yucky, and uh, don't do all these things. Don't eat that, don't eat that food. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, all the food laws, do not touch, do not eat. Uh, lots of Jewish overtones to all these uh, laws. They could be saying, look, you're now living in, in the age of the resurrection and here are all the rules you need to follow. Well, on the flip side, sometimes when there's a lot of legalism, a lot of extra little rules, uh, people make such little rules that are doable, but at the same time, there's a lot of license. There's a lot of other sins you can then do, uh, and doesn't really matter, because after all, you're spiritual because you keep these little rules. And so license uh, to sin comes in, while people claim to be spiritual. And so there's lots of wacko uh, cultish kind of uh, groups often in America you know, where the great spiritual leader has, has many wives, and it's all fine. And New Age religions, which you'll find if you walk down the street in Katoomba here, um, lots of people who have crystals and dolphins, not real ones, but you know, little dolphin crystals, and they feel like they're very spiritual, but they can live in complete immorality, but that doesn't matter. Some expressions of Christianity can be like that. I feel very close to God because I've been through this meeting, this experience, and all well, repenting from sin. That doesn't really matter. That's why I think in here in chapter 2, verse 19, Paul has to say, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from sin, depart from iniquity. So people say, look, the resurrection has already happened. This is all there is. Then it means there's no judgment day. All you have is now. Just live for the now. It's like lots of non-Christian uh, spiritualities. You go to some non-Christian funerals and they think, oh, you know, Uncle so-and-so, I'm sure he's having a good time up there. And I'm sure he's playing golf and smiling down at us and having a party. And it's just hopeful, well-wishing, vain hope in the end. Some of the Christian world is not too different, isn't it? Yes, we tick, we agree, we do, we, we agree we are, there is a second coming, there is Judgment Day. But when was the last time you heard a decent sermon on hell and final punishment? It's easy to talk about Christian worship You know, practical ways, to, to do well in practical living and, and, and caring for the community, social action, how your career really matters. But to talk of heaven and hell, to give Judgment Day that weight that the Scriptures give to it, it's okay, maybe even talk about heaven, but to talk about hell and judgment? Friends, if there is no Judgment Day, then we're actually robbing people of the hope of heaven. The first two lines of that poem... You know, you may die with Jesus, you may endure, but there is no future reigning with him or living with him. You take away the certain hope. And you take away the warning, don't you, if you do away of judgment. You can deny Christ, you can be faithless, and don't worry, no judgment day. He won't deny us. You can see how that would upset The faith of some. So, in the face of such false teaching and threat, such gangrenous babble, Timothy, verse 15, has to handle the truth rightly. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but rightly handling the word of truth. Verse 14, how's he doing to do that? Four very quick points. Verse 14, By reminding them. Reminding them of what? Uh, The church, uh, Timothy is to remind them. Well, of these things. What are these things in verse 14? Well, it's what he's just said. In fact, it's what Paul just reminded Timothy of. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Remember the gospel. So what do you do when a false teacher first comes to your town and preaches a false gospel? What do you do first? Richard Baxter, the English Puritan, in the 1600s, he said, This is what you do. You don't, first of all, take down that heresy point by point. No, you don't start preaching against the heresy like that. What you've got to do, first of all, is to preach up the truth of the gospel. To preach up the truth of the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ. That's how the US feds uh, find counterfeit money, isn't it? They don't study counterfeit money. They just keep on looking looking clearer and clearer in what the real money is. And the more you train people to look at what the real money is, then when the counterfeit comes, they'll recognise it. Preach up the gospel. But secondly, point uh, C2, Avoid. Part of handling the truth is that at times you've got to avoid actually getting into those discussions. Don't stir the pot more than you have to. Don't stir up that leads, stuff that leads up to more fights and, and ungodliness. Verse 16, avoid irreverent babble, for it lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Verse 23, have nothing to do with ignorant, foolish controversies. Ah, sometimes every now and then people come to campus Bible study and they say, hey, do you guys believe in six-day, 24-hour creation? And they go to all this scientific fact to try to back up, you know, Genesis 1 how it has to be six 24-hour uh, days. And you can get into all the science and argue, but really they are actually making more of science than they should. It's just not worth getting in, into that, that discussion. You know, Genesis 1 is not necessarily saying it's 24 scientific days. I had a friend who really didn't like what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 about uh, women and men and preaching and things like that. And so he dug around for manuscripts, obscure kind of manuscripts, to find alternative readings to get away from what Paul was saying. At times, yes, you've got to give your defense, but there's a time when enough is enough. You've said your bit, you've defended your bit. Any more conversation will just generate more and more Uh, rubbish really. You see a bit on Facebook sometimes, don't you? People blog online and the discussion can get very heated very quickly, isn't it? Some people deliberately do it. Uh, uh, Charles tells me it's called trolling. Um, You troll, uh, it's a fishing metaphor, you put a line behind your boat and you go along and try to hook something, try to bait someone. Trolls is also an imaginary monster. And so here's what I found um, on the web, right? Troll makes internet mad, troll likes anger, troll want people to be a miserable, or be as miserable as troll. Like there's a troll typing along, right? And so experienced people on the web, not necessarily Christian, they even they have worked it out, that the best way to discourage the troll is please do not feed the trolls. Do not reply to this thread best just to leave it alone. Avoid. But thirdly, to cleanse yourself. Chapter 2, verse 20 to 21. Be that which is honourable, not dishonourable. Verse 20 to 21 is an easy, if you glance through there, a metaphor, an illustration from the household. Now, different kinds of utensils, different kinds of um, uh, stuff you use around the house. You know, do you want to be something honourable or dishonourable? Do you want to be a you know, $2,000 m- mixmaster? You know, the thing that and does everything, cooks everything for you all at once kind of thing. Do you want to be like that? Or do you want to be a toilet brush, which also goes around and around? <laughs> what one do you want to be? Well, verse 21, cleanse yourself from what is dishonourable. Cleanse yourself. Verse 19, he just said, depart from iniquity. You cleanse yourself by, by avoiding that irreverent babble, but also by turning away from sin. We're not only to talk the talk, but walk the talk, to be useful to the master. Moore Theological College a couple of years ago, uh, basically I think made, or very much encouraged, all the people in singles quarters to go have this uh, covenant eyes, this uh, pornography filter and accountability system. Great move, isn't it? It's no good to be at the top of your class to be able to translate Greek into Hebrew and yet still be watching porn day in, day out. Godliness is the important thing. Fix up those things first. Deal with them. Verse 22, we are to cleanse ourselves and to do it in the way we deal with passion. Now, why didn't I use verse 22 to talk about pornography? See, flee youthful passion. Because I think the youthful passion here is not about sexual passion. Let's keep reading, verse 22. So flee youthful passion and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentle... It's about how you deal with the false teacher, with false teaching. Because the passion of youth is not so much sexuality, but the passion of, of being angry, the passion of wanting to, to win the argument the passion of being headstrong, the, the arrogance that certain young tennis players have had recently. The, um, the, that's the, what we're talking about. Not having that passion, but being godly. See, godliness, godliness is more important than success, than having a big church. Sadly, um, Pastor Driscoll from Mass Hill Church He was very big, big on exorcism, big on the internet, one of the celebrities that uh, we even brought over here to Australia. He had to resign from his turf Grove movement, his Acts 29 movement, not because of immorality but because of youthful passions. Tim Keller had this to say. He said, in the internet age, Mark Driscoll definitely built up an evangelical movement enormously. But the brashness and arrogance and rudeness in personal relationships, which he himself had confessed repeatedly, was obvious to many from earliest days and has now definitely disillusioned quite a lot of people. It's how you conduct yourself with others, not success. To be useful to the master. This cleansing not only involves fleeing certain things, verse 22, but also running towards those positive things, isn't it? And it's not just about godliness in general, but it's about godliness in the way you actually handle the opposition. And so fourthly, it's about how you correct, verse 22 to 26, the opposition. Verse 24, the Lord's servant, again, picking up this idea of the master of the house, the Lord's servant is to teach patiently. Verse 25, correcting with gentleness. One of the things I have to say to uh, my friends uh, from Focus as they go home to their home churches is do not be a young punk. A lot of times I think, "Oh, they've learned all the great things in campus Bible study and." Think. they go to their church and their minister gets one little verse wrong, and they come up to the minister at the end of the, the sermon, say, like, "Hey, you got this wrong." You know, blah, blah, blah. you know Joshua Ng back in focus, said that, you know? I said, "Do not say, do not say Joshua Ng said that. <laughs> say Charles Gage said that, right? But that say me. <laughs> I have a, an acronym for them. It's shut up. (laughs) It stands for sit humbly under the underpaid pastor. (laughs) Shut up. Be humble. That's how you, especially when not all error is serious error like here in 2 Timothy. But what when you do meet serious error? I'm sure many of you remember a couple of years ago on Q&A was the uh, Archbishop Peter Jensen, the then then Archbishop. I think it was an issue on homosexuality or something. I can't remember now. But he was under attack. Two prominent non-Christians on either side of him. The person running the show and this uh, lady, Davini, who was a uh, bit of a joker, really. and um, Basically, Peter Jensen handled himself very respectfully, while on the other side, this lady kept on attacking. The next day, the Australian, uh, an editorial came in. I don't know if it's a Christian or not. It may not even have been a Christian. And uh, this is what it said. Jensen is to be commended for his grace under fire, for his genuine efforts to initiate respect, debate, and for standing up for his beliefs. Davini just rudely interrupted others. A look at her website gives a reminder that she's a comedian, Sorry, I've forgotten a bit about that. But it's not my idea of humour to belittle others. She has no respect for anyone. So you can win the argument, but actually lose the crowd, isn't it? We are to be godly as those who are not just trying to win the argument. In fact, what we're trying to win is the people. And so you see at the end of chapter 2 here, correcting the opponents of gentleness, verse 25. That God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. That they may come to their senses. See, win the person. Love them. Come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Look at that. The devil is involved. It's a spiritual uh, battlefield. The devil actually captures people. These people having been captured by him To do his will. The devil is alive and well and actually captivating people. How does the devil get people to do his will? Is it by possessing them? No. It is by being the father of lies. Remember John chapter 8, what Jesus said to the Jews? The Jews thought they were great. They had Abraham as their father. But look what Jesus says. He says, no, no, Abraham is not your father. Your father is the devil. He's a liar from the beginning. Right? When he speaks lies, it's his native tongue. He's a murderer from the beginning. He's the father of lies. That's how he murdered mankind, isn't it? He said, eat the fruit and you surely will not die. There's the big lie. He said, go your own way, be wise in your own eyes, and it'll be the best way to live. There's the lies. We are captivated, our society, by the lies of the devil. And your people would be shocked, won't they, if they ever think that the devil was their father. I love Star Wars. Uh, When I was little, my son and I played Star Wars games. And we uh, make a big um, lightsabers and paint them red and green. And um, uh, we, we act out different scenes. And of course, my son, Jordan, when he was about five, he'll always be the goody. He'll be Luke Skywalker. I'll be baddie. I'll be Darth Vader. And we play out the most famous scene in episode five, where we're up on the, on the couch, right? And we fight this dun, 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 this big battle. And then droom, I cut off his hand. And not literally, so like this, right? And, <laughs> And he's there at the end of the couch, like in the movie, hanging off the couch and saying, Ah. And I say to him, Luke, come over to the dark side. Together we can rule the galaxy. <laughs> and he goes, No, never. You killed my father. I am your father. <laughs> and then he goes, No, and falls down to the ground, you see? Know, as in the movie. Did you know that famous line, I am your father? That was such a shock to everyone. In fact, when uh, Lucas was writing the script, he put false scripts in there. You know, People thought that Darth Vader was saying, oh, no, I didn't kill your father, Obi-Wan Kenobi killed your father. No one knew except Mark Hamill, who played Luke Skywalker, just ten minutes before the actual shooting. He was told, look, what, Luke is, what uh, Darth is going to say to you is actually, I am your father, so that he can really act out the, the shock. Our world was shocked at that moment when they saw the movie. Unless, of course, you're Chinese and you see that, Chinese videos all the time, and that kind of thing happens all the time anyway. But (laughs) you people were shocked all around the world, and friends, people are shocked that the devil is their father, but he is capturing people by lies. We are people who are trying to rescue people from those lies, it's a spiritual battle. But notice verse 25. God can grant them. God is able to rescue. Well, to tie things up then, to be an unashamed worker, it is to be a worker, first and foremost. It does involve work. Chapter 2, verse 15, Timothy is called a worker. It's a bit daunting, isn't it? It's hard. It involves all these things we've been talking about. Gospel ministry is more than just having coffee at Tyree. It is more than just <laughs> running youth good grains. It can be hard work. And sometimes those coffee at Tyree, it's hard work, isn't it? When you've got to handle people and correct people. It may involve study at Bible college. Hard work. Should you get into it? Should that be your career? Is that your career potential? At the end of my third year of Moore College, uh, my mother sent me to uh, America to study. And uh, so Philip Jensen, who was then the CBS uh, pastor, uh, he had to fill in all these forms, you know. And uh, some of the forms um, had, you know, one to five, you know, good, bad. And Philip just said to me, well, I hate these forms. Actually, Philip didn't want to send me, but he, he okay, okay. So I, I just go for the second highest. So, and so he didn't even read it. Tick, 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 four, 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 four. four. And then came to a question which said, What is this candidate's career potential in ministry? Well, Philip was reading. He got out his red pen, put a big cross around the word career, arrow. And he said, ministry is not a career. Ministry is about service. I can imagine Don Carson on the other end having a nice little chuckle about that. (laughs) But it's true, isn't it? It's not about fulfilling your own potential, your ministry career, your prestige, your power, advancement, uh, building your own kingdom. Ministry is not service. Sorry, it's not career, but service. Service of the Lord Jesus, a soldier pleasing his commanding officer, a servant useful to the master, and a service for the sake of others, doing all for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, even for the opponents, that maybe God can rescue them from the devil's hands. Chapter 2, verse 15. Do your very best to present yourself to God as one approved. Present yourself to God as one approved. Do you want that tick of approval? Yes. Yes. But not from other people, but from God. He's the one that we seek to please. To handle the word of God, to handle the word of truth rightly. I used to think it's just about, you know, exegeting, understanding the Bible rightly. But it's more than that. We've seen today that it's about how we treat people how we correct people, how we live in godliness. I once asked the Wycliffe Bible translator, hey, what's the most important thing about being a good Bible translator? I expect them to say, oh, you've got to know the original language of the Bible, you've got to know the language that you're translating to, know the culture, all that sort of stuff. But he looked at me and said, the first and most important thing to be a Bible translator is to have the Bible translated into your life. I thought, whoa. <laughs> it's not about career." It's about godliness. Lastly, remember this quote from Gittins. The calling. The calling or vocation, on the other hand, is a passionate commitment to the work for its own sake. The work is fulfilling its own right, without regard for money or advancement. Individuals with a calling see their work as contributing to the greater good, to something larger than they are. And hence, he says, the religious connotation is entirely appropriate. Friends, if secular workers can see their work as contributing to the greater good, something larger, an economic, a political, a medical solution for the world, caring for Ebola victims, caring for the refugees fleeing ISIS, then how much more we who are engaged in gospel ministry? We are saving people for glory in eternity. We are saving people from the clutches of Satan. Will Jesus say to you and I, Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder of what it means to be an approved worker. Please change us that whether we're in full time or part time or whatever ministry, that we might be those who look to you for our approval and seek to take this gospel message, to keep it rightly, to correct others gently, to rescue people from their father Satan and to take them to an eternity with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.